We're in a series, I think you are, I'm told you are, on the creed, and we've got two. The part that says, I believe in Jesus Christ, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, I, the first time I remember saying this creed, oddly enough, is rather thematically linked with this evening, because it was when I was a brownie. I don't like to brag, but I was sixer of the Pixies. Uh, and uh, once every half term, we had something called Church Parade. Now, we all sort of wandered about with flags and uh, orange squash and biscuits. I had no idea what was going on, but I said those words as part of this performance. And that was largely my idea of church at that stage, quite a lot of wandering about saying things you didn't understand. And I met more of this walking about and processions when I was at university, which was uh, at London University and partly at Córdoba University in the south of Spain, where they are very much into a lot of walking around and processions and parades. And in fact, I've just stopped being ahead, as Joe said, and I haven't been able to get back to the ferias in Córdoba uh, these last few years. So I've just been and I've just come back. And there they all were again, parading around. And as you can imagine, the Virgin Mary porcelain, silver candlesticks, carnations, and parading through the streets, and bands playing, and rose petals being thrown very joyful and public and noisy. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Now, that doesn't sound noisy or public, this rather private moment, the Virgin Mary in a nowhere place, Nazareth. I imagine, don't you, that she was totally alone and that's where it all began. But actually, it all began with an angel and actually it all began with God. And that creed says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That sense of God being at the beginning of everything that, that we'll know from reading Genesis 1. Right back at the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of god was hovering over the waters back before the beginning and then at the beginning of jesus's ministry coming on to matthew 3 verse 16 as soon as jesus was baptized you remember he's he's walked down to the jordan and said will you baptize me and john said no no, no that's all the wrong way around we should be doing this differently and he said no get I want to get in and he gets in and he's baptized and he comes up and at that moment heaven was opened he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him and a voice from heaven said this is my son whom I love with him I'm well pleased the voice of the father the spirit like a dove the son in the water Tim mentioned it being trinity sunday and for many people, the Trinity's a question, the tr 
trinity, three in one, one in three. But for me, I don't know about for you, for me, it was an answer. My most meaningful experiences as a child and as a teenager, the parts of my life I'd loved the most had been with people. Now, I know that's not true for everyone. I undeservedly had really lovely parents, a brother I adored, loads of lovely friends. So that was the good bit of life. And when I went to church and all that parading about, I didn't think it had anything to do with those really lovely relationships, which it seemed to me life was all about. That was sort of candlesticks and rich tea biscuits, and here were all the things that really mattered. There were some Christians at school. They had, they were a bit scary. I don't know if you've come across those sorts, but um, they sort of had this idea of this divine headmaster in the sky, and I sort of felt one headmaster was enough at that age. And... Um, he was sort of sitting about, I don't know, eternally telling people off, I thought. And then I was 23 and I was on an alpha course and suddenly my idea of God changed. Oh, I don't think he is a divine headmaster who's really eternally cross. Oh no, Trinity God, we're made in the image of God who is relationship. He is an ongoing, as you know, but it's still amazing on Trinity Sunday, an ongoing interaction of self-giving love. That's who we're made in the image of. And that's why it was an answer for me. Because, oh, I now see why and how I love. I'm made in the image of that God. And that makes sense of why relationships for many of us seem to be the best bits about life. We're made in the image of the God who doesn't just approve of, God, of love, but who is love, who is relationship. And so, coming on to what we're looking at this evening, the Son of God coming to earth, embedded inside a human being. I mean, quite extraordinary, isn't it? The umbilical cord linked to Mary. The virgin birth, we tend to call it. Actually, it's the virgin conception, isn't it? I mean, at birth, there tends to be just the one on whom the onus is. And um, as somebody, a person, I would say, of extreme cowardice, myself, wetness, aversion to pain and hospitals, I can say that I have done that twice. <laughs> twice. But you're on your own. You're grateful for the encouragement, but you're on your own. Let's be honest, you are on your own. We're talking about the virgin conception because it's at the conception stage that one tends to have company. It's not the birth, is it? It's the conception stage that the company counts. So, we know, don't we, that you need a sperm and an egg to make a baby. It's true. It is true. Um, so, virgins can't give birth. And if they do, it's a miracle. 
The challenge to the existence of miracles came in the 19th century, as many of you know, and started to cast a shadow. I remember in my own religious studies lessons at school, that shadow being cast. Can miracles really happen? I hasten to add my religious study lessons were in the 20th century, not the 19th, but the shadow was still cast. There were doubters in the church then. There was David Jenkins, Bishop of Durham, and he was saying, I very much doubt that God would arrange a virgin birth. And we're told now, surveys show us that about a quarter of the clergy don't believe in that virgin birth, don't think it ever happened. So my first question for us tonight is, can we believe it? We know a sperm and an egg make a baby. Can we believe it? Well, first of all, does the miraculous conception seem to you to mesh with the rest of it? What, the rest of what we know and believe? So go back to where we were at the beginning in Genesis 1. It said, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Go back to the baptism. Jesus is in the, the Jordan. The Spirit of God is hovering again. The Spirit of God does hover. Birth the world, birth Jesus' ministry, birth Jesus himself, it kind of sounds right. Jesus' ministry began, got the moment in the River Jordan, and as he went on with his ministry, he worked miracles. So there's a kind of consistency, the hovering, the birthing, the going on with the miracles. You remember that conversation with Nicodemus? He said, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born of the Holy Spirit. Born of the Holy Spirit. Sounds as if it's all meshing together. Jesus left the world supernaturally. The resurrection, the ascension. Wouldn't it be fitting if he also came to the world supernaturally? Would, would the supernatural entrance at the beginning not match the middle and the end and onwards. But to some inside the church, it doesn't sound right. Less surprisingly, to some outside the church, it doesn't sound right. Frankly, to Joseph, it didn't sound right. Because he knew what we all know. He knew the sperm egg thing, and he knew he hadn't been part of making this one. Every generation thinks they invented sex. The wonderful poem by Philip Larkin, Sexual Intercourse, began in 1963, which was rather late for me, between the end of the Chatterley Ban and the Beatles' first LP. But of course, it didn't begin in 1963. It's been around a while. And Joseph had to be assured by the angel. This was a, a highly stressful and discombobulating moment for Joseph. And the angel it needed something dramatic to tell him it was okay. Joseph really is a great unsung hero. But that's another sermon. An angel was needed because... A virgin conception is highly improbable, and the reassurance needed to be quite dramatic. Highly improbable or totally impossible? Can we believe it? Well, so far, 
I hope I'm persuading you, if you need persuading, which you probably don't, that it meshes with the rest. But also, doesn't it all depend where you start from? If you start from a naturalistic point of view, that is where you'll stay. The world is a closed system. Or maybe the deist view that says God set the whole thing up and left. In these views, the world is like a painting in a frame, or, or maybe a, a moving image, a film on a screen. And everything that is, is within it. Everything that is, is within the frame. Everything that is, is within the screen. If we go for that sort of view, everything is within. All we can do is observe. Rather like David Attenborough looking at elephants or giraffes, or I came across, do you know this animal? I only came across it this weekend. A star-nosed mole. Instead of a nose, it's got 22 tentacles. That's kind of more improbable in my view, but it's true. And if we, if we are within the frame, we look at human beings... Like David Attenborough looks at animals, we just observe, oh, yes, elephants normally do that, that, and that. That's all we can do, observe. We can't create, we're inside the frame. And so science, which is amazing, is endlessly investigating, looking, describing, exploring. But the Holy Spirit was hovering over the waters at the beginning, outside the frame outside the screen. I mean, I don't know exactly how it happened in Genesis 1. I wasn't there, but nor was anyone else. And if they had been, they'd have been inside the frame anyway. So all we'd have got would have been more descriptions. But the Holy Spirit hovered outside to conceive and birth the world. Why wouldn't the Holy Spirit hover over Mary's womb and conceive and birth the Messiah. So it seems to me the only thing against it is the assumption that either there isn't anyone outside the frame or that the God outside the frame either doesn't or can't do miracles. And so I think we can, and I do, believe it. God brought the whole thing into being. Jesus died and rose again, the miraculous conception is utterly consistent with everything else we believe. And so I can join the great cloud of witnesses through time and say, I do believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So I think we can believe it, but what's the point? Well, why? Well, I think firstly, it affirms our faith in the unique identity of Christ. He was born of the Virgin Mary, really born. Docetism would say appeared to be born. We say no, he was really born. Remember in Isaiah, 700 years before there was a prophecy, the Virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, we'll call him Emmanuel. So if my uh, white shirt is the, the deity of Christ, the divinity of Christ, I guess what happened is that Jesus put on human nature 
like this. Still in the white shirt, still divine, but he put on human nature. And at times, some people found, saw his humanity and didn't quite see the divinity. Others saw the divinity. But it could have been obscured a little. The white shirt, the divinity, and the cloak of humanity. For a while, he came into the world down the birth canal as a baby boy, which was an enormous risk. Herod was about. He wanted to kill baby boys. It's quite a thought, isn't it? This, this vulnerable God. He grew as we grow, toddler like we were, a little child and then a big boy and a man, he walks under the Jordan to be baptized. And by John 10, they're picking up stones to stone him because you, you, a mere man, claim to be God. He claimed to be God, a man and God. This is something new, this identity. We're not used to God walking around on earth with, with legs and feet and toenails. It's very odd. He had a human body. He got tired and hungry like we do. He had human emotions, as we know. He was angry. He wept. He had compassion. He had limited knowledge. He had to seek the Father's will. He was tempted in every way, but was without sin. He was made perfect, not imperfect, but his humanity was fully, fully tested. A man and God. A man and God. Notice like when a baby's born and, and they're holding the baby. Everyone comes and say, oh, lovely. Does it look like John or does it look like Jane? Oh, John, I think it's Joe. I think Jane. Truth is, it looks like a baby, doesn't it? <laughs> or E.T. or something. <laughs> but really, it probably looks a bit like John and Jane. Let's be honest and probably has a bit of the natures of John and Jane, and is a John Jane baby. And what about Jesus? Jesus is a God Mary baby, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of Mary, a God human baby, dual natured, but in a unique way, fully God and fully human, fully God and fully human, not like Mr. Tumnus in Narnia, half goat, half human, fully, fully, fully God, fully human. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh, it says, and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth, and actually lived among us. You know the message translation, it says he, he moved into the neighborhood. God revealed to us the truth. And it's as if in that stable in Bethlehem, truth happened. Truth somehow burst into the world and love too. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. I don't know if any of you have ever read this. This is the best, best children's story about the nativity. Now, there's a bit of poetic license. It's Jeanette Winterson, 
the best, one of the best writers in my view. Uh, but she captures something of the momentousness of what was happening. So if you'll forgive me, we'll have a little bit of this. It was life, bloody and raw and wet and steaming in the cold like our breath. And the baby, his face screwed up and his eyes closed and Joseph's hand bigger than his back. And there was a blast of trumpets and the front blew clean off the stable. I looked up and saw angels' feet pushed through the sagging roof, their bodies taut on the ridgeline, heralding the beginning of something, the end of something. I don't know what words to say, but beginnings and ends are hinged together and folded back against each other like shutters, like angels' wings. And then it goes on, and the birth, and the shepherds, and the and the kings, which we know possibly didn't come to the stable, but this is imaginary and based on truth. There was nothing to show for the night just gone, except three boxes of precious stuff, a hole in the roof where the angels had dangled their feet on the rim of time. So there's something in the way she writes, using her imagination to describe something of its momentousness. The virgin birth, the miraculous conception, is a means to understand mystery momentousness, the unique identity of Christ, his dual nature, fully man and fully God. This was something very big. And if it was something very big, there must have been a purpose. If he had a unique identity, what was going to happen? He had a unique identity, but that sounds a bit static. What for? The angel says to Joseph, this is what's happened. The baby Mary's carrying has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, and in the next breath, he shall save his people from their sins. There's a purpose. He was tempted in every way, but was without sin. Born fully human, but not in Adam's line. He and only he could become the perfect sacrifice. None of the rest of us could, because we're not perfect or God. But he could, because of his unique identity, he had a unique ability. He could choose with his human will what was most pleasing to his heavenly father, and he did. And then we have the agony in the garden, showing the extent of his obedience to the father, the extent of his love for us, and I think the extent of the dread of the pain which he would suffer as a human being and endure. He could, only he could, and in love he did. And when he died again, truth and love burst in on us. Matthew 27, 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. The earth shook, the rocks split. He exchanged our mess for his white shirt. He put that on us and presented us to God in an act of pure grace, white-shirted. Through humble obedience, he presents God to us. This is what God's like. Look at Jesus. 
through potent sacrifice, he presents us to God. Here they are, white-shirted. We look and we're perhaps a bit speechless. Can we cope with love like this, truth like this? But perhaps we can cope because we kind of can cope with the baby. The story begins, there's a baby. That's how we started. He grew, he was human, he had an earthly life. And I think this does matter. He was wounded by that life as we are. He was wounded by that life, and we are too. And I don't know about you, but at my most wounded, and for me that's probably been at places of bereavement, it's the wounded God I've needed. The truth for some emerges quickly, for some slowly. Peter, the disciple Peter, suddenly gets it. He says, you are the Christ. Thomas, he wants to have a good look. I really understand. After the resurrection, check it out. And then he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. You have seen and you believe. That's good. But blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. And then what do they do? Go and miraculously catch fish. Because miracles are part of it. And then Jesus asked Peter, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my lambs, says Jesus. Take care of my sheep, second time. Feed my sheep, third time. Because with truth always comes love. Feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. Love. If we do anything without love, we're told we're clanging gongs. It's no good. Love's been described in a million ways, and no definition probably does it justice. I heard a slightly oblique definition of love the other day. Love is saying a foundational yes to every moment, entering every moment, every transaction, every conversation, every relationship, every everything with openness, wholeness, and wholeheartedness. Jesus did that. Mary, a young Jewish girl, not apparently anything special, is put on the spot. Greetings, says the angel. Mary, in a wonderful understatement, wondered what kind of greeting that might be. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel helpfully adds, nothing's impossible with God. Mary says... I'm the Lord's servant, may it be to me, as you've said. She says a foundational yes. She is utterly open to the moment, and she makes space for God inside her own body, inside herself. A totally usable instrument in the way she entered that moment with utter openness. Now... Don't you find if you walk around with your mind all filled up with your own plans, agendas, schemes, or if we walk around with that sort of negative, nitpicky, resentful, critical mind, or even a mind filled with regret, or worry, or self-pity, or self-anything, we're, we're so cluttered up that there's no space to accommodate God or others. No space for love 
or the possibilities of the moment. And so uh, the little thing I've learned in my very small way in this journey of faith is handing away, as it clutters hand away by his help and grace, take this thought, this worry, this horrible judgmental heart, this critical, declutter me endlessly. You can do it in little bits as you go or a little bit longer. I find out in nature, I don't know if you find that, it can be a great place just to say, declutter me. And we can breathe in the Holy Spirit because we know the Holy Spirit hovers. Always has done. Mary stops what she's doing, stops, and her life will never be the same again as she accommodates God wholeheartedly and God is born in her. And we can do that too. And our life can never be the same. Who she is is enough. She's just probably a teenager, just a young girl. Who she is is enough. It's not public and noisy and silver candlesticks and rose petals and flags. She's just there. And the little scene, the little encounter is very simple and private and quiet, though probably terrifying too, but perhaps joyful. She starts to sing and she sings, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. That little moment, we see her being private and quiet and thankful, and I guess we would all say, it's hard, but it's good to find moments of quiet to be thankful. And he can fill us with his joy, even when life is tough. As I I look out, and I, of course, don't know you, but I know that for some of you, life will be tough today. And wouldn't it also be tough for Mary? She was going to have to walk an extraordinarily tough path. I once heard a Franciscan priest say, there's nothing to prove and nothing to protect. I am who I am, and it's enough. It's enough. It was enough for Mary. We're enough. I don't know you, but I know you're enough. In his enoughness, we're enough. His grace is sufficient for us. We're already wearing the white shirt. He gave it to us on the cross. The carol says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. And so we pray, shall we, together? Lord, Be born, we pray, in us today. Amen. Amen. Amen.